I'd like you to turn to Romans, Romans 13. We're going to be in verses 8 through 10. And while you're turning there, I want to talk to you about how easily distracted we become and how easy it is to just turn our attention. Have you ever seen that commercial where the Little League team is sitting on the bleachers and the coach has given them this, this grand, fantastic talk on motivation and winning and teamwork and, and all that stuff. And the kids are just there absolutely enraptured with the coach. They're all sitting there and they're hanging on every word until one of them goes, oh, look, a bug. And then they're all running off to the side. And, and you know, it, it's funny, but it's kind of like how life goes. We can be totally enraptured by what's just before us and get distracted by something that catches our attention, something shiny, uh, something attractive. And, and the funny thing about it is when we go running in those directions, we feel like there's something there that can satisfy us. Tell me if I'm right on this. When we get there, when we get a hold of whatever that shiny object is or that new goal that we have, it never satisfies us. We're never fulfilled. As a matter of fact, if you're anything like me, I'm like, oh, look, a bug. And I get over to the bug, and I go, oh, wait a minute, another bug. <laughs> and then there's something over here and something over there. So I want to talk to you about that this morning in, in relation to what Paul is doing here with Romans. We've been looking at ways to put the love of Christ in action. Our first peek at this was uh, in our homes and how that functioned in our homes. And, and then last week we talked about how it worked in the churches and both of those things, and this week as well, are anchored by Philippians chapter 2, where Paul tells us to treat others as more significant than ourselves. Now, this was the example that Christ set. Uh, he set the bar. It was a high bar. But we are called to humble ourselves and called to treat each other as more important than ourselves. Now, that's what these red flags are all about. And we've been handing them out at the end of the service. We're going to hand them out again today. We've got plenty. They are reminders that we're called to treat others as more important than ourselves. That call is a high and holy calling. It calls us into being formed into the likeness of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And this week, we're going to look at what love in action looks like out in the community, out beyond those doors. What happens when we get beyond the walls and have to live life Monday through Saturday? We're going to live and breathe in all of this, and how do we take it with us? So this is Love in Action, part four in the community, part three, I'm sorry. And the truth that I want you to hold on to today is this. Godly love seeks and satisfies. Godly love seeks and satisfies. Here's the context of Romans, because you know how we are about context. You're not going to understand a passage unless you understand the context that it's written in. So here's just a quick overview of Romans. In chapters 1 through 4, Paul establishes a foundation for justification through faith. And then in chapters 5 through 8, he talks about the results of what justification in faith looks like in our daily lives, in our present experience, but he also talks about the hope that we have in our being justified to our Father in heaven. Then in chapters 9 through 11, Paul grieves over many of the Jews who have rejected Christ. And he also explores the theological implications of rejecting Christ. So it doesn't apply just to the Jews, it applies to everybody who rejects Christ. 
Then right at the end at 12 to 15, Paul talks about how the gospel should impact our daily lives. Now we've talked about this before. The gospel, the gospel isn't just something that we share with somebody. It's not just words that we, we profess with somebody. There's no script to the gospel. The gospel is a transformed life. The gospel is what we live. We should be living and experiencing the gospel every day. If we're, if we have in the back of our minds, if we have firmly planted in our hearts that the gospel is that Jesus died for me and my sins so that I could be transformed into a witness for his grace and his glory, then we can live the gospel. So I think I think maybe sometimes the church has done a little bit of a disservice to the gospel and it's made something that we say to somebody hoping that we get the right decision. The gospel is who we are. The gospel is how we live our lives. It should permeate everything that we do throughout the day. Our thankfulness to the Father for saving us. So, Paul wants to impress that upon us and wants us to live the gospel day by day, moment by moment. So in Romans 12, he says that that we're to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, not conformed, not fashioned like, not uh, following the same pattern of the world, but transformed. And when he talks about transformation, he talks about a supernatural miracle that happens inside us when we come to Jesus Christ. He talks about the renewal of the mind and uh, this transformation, this renewal of the mind should have an outward aspect to it. There should be evidence in our lives that we are being changed, that we're being molded into the image of God. That, that there should be some aspect of, of how we live and how we talk and, and how we act that says there's something different about this person. Uh, we're supposed to be set apart. So he also says that we all have gifts of grace Um, Some of us may have more than one, but we all have gifts of grace, and we should be careful not to think too highly of ourselves because everybody in the body of Christ, everybody who's saved has a particular gift that is necessary for the body to function properly. So what Paul is setting up is how we do church together and how we live together. And the fact that as, as members of the body of Christ, you, me, everybody here, everybody who calls upon the name of Jesus Christ for Savior has a function in the body of Christ. There are no pew sitters in the true church. So we're all called to work together. So, and so he said, don't think too highly of yourself because we are one with each other and each one of us is necessary in order for the church to function properly. So... Now that leads us up to our passage for the day. And what we're going to see in our passage for today is two truths about love. Now let me talk to you about love for a second. There are a lot of definitions of what love is. Most of us, most of you are astute. You know that there are three or four types of love. Um, Yeah, but generally when we talk about love, we think about romantic love. It's the first thing that comes to our mind. Maybe it's not the first thing that comes to your mind. But when I think about love, I think about how much I love my wife. And, so, and, and, and that's a good thing, uh, that romantic love is a good love. But when Paul talks about love, that's not what he's talking about. He uses the word agape. And agape is a godly love. It's a different type of love. Now let me give you a formal definition of what agape is. Uh, 
Agape love is love that originates on behalf of the lover without regard to the value or worth of the beloved. It originates on behalf of the lover without regard to the value or the worth of the beloved. And what it means is that God loves us just because he's God. There's nothing in us that causes God to love us. What we're talking about is a totally selfless, sacrificing type of love. This is a love that's hard for us to understand. Because when we fall in love, it's because we're attracted to somebody. There's some quality in them that draws us to them. There's something we like about them. And so God loves us simply because he's God. And this is what Paul is talking about when he uses the word love, when he uses the word agape. So we're going to see two truths about that type of love. One is that that godly love seeks selflessly. That's in verses 8 and 9. And in verses 10, we will see that that godly love satisfies completely. And we are called to express that type of godly love to the people around us. So let's take a look at this love that seeks selflessly. Uh, Verse 8. Paul says, owe no one anything. Now, it means, uh, a very good translation is, we are to leave no outstanding debt. But the intent of this verse and what the Jews would have heard is that the obligation for us to love others the way that God loves us has no limit. We are to love others the way God loves us with absolutely no limitations. It doesn't stop. There are no exceptions to it. There are, there, there are no tests that would take us to the end of our love. So he says, owe no one anything except to love each other. It's what he's trying to tell us. And again, he's using agape here, this godly love that we're supposed to exhibit. For no one who loves another, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Now, he has completed the law. The law has been accomplished in him. The law has been satisfied in him. Now, what that means is that if we are expressing this godly love because we are being transformed because we have been regenerated, because we've been saved, then the law has no power over us. The law has no consequences for us. We're no longer under the burden of the law. It doesn't mean that we don't obey God. I think some people kind of go there on this. You know, every time I talk about the Ten Commandments, somebody goes, oh, you're putting me under the law. Don't do that. And I want to say, well, which of these commandments do you want to violate? You know, who do you want to murder? <laughs> you know, what idol do you want to worship? So we have to be practical about all this. But if we're being changed from the inside, if the Holy Spirit is dwelling inside of us, then the law has no consequences for us. As a matter of fact, if we read the passage correctly, we find out that the law has no consequences. There's no condemnation for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. But love does have consequences for us. Watch this. Uh, Paul talks about it in Colossians 3, verse 12. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. Then if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. So Paul's saying, this is what godly love looks like. This is how you carry it out. You, you, you are, you're compassionate, you're kind, 
you're meek, you're humble, you're patient, you're bearing with one another, you're forgiving each other. And in verse 14, he says, and above all these put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So as that love begins flowing from us, we're bound together with God and his creation in perfect harmony. Now, I like the sound of that, but let me tell you what it means. It means we have peace. It means we have peace. I mean, isn't that everything we're looking for in life? We're darting here and darting there and chasing after this bug and chasing after that bug and hoping that somewhere in there we'll find some peace. Well, Paul gives us the pathway to peace. Express that godly love to the people around you, and you will find this. You will be bound together in perfect harmony. Paul's trying to tell us that we should have unlimited love for each other and for others. So it's not just limited to those in the church. And so in verse 9, he says this, For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's hard to do, isn't it? Let me show you how hard it is to do. If, if you, you can turn there if you want, or you can just follow along. If you take a look at Matthew 19, we have the, the teaching of the rich young ruler and Jesus. And it, it says in verse 16 of, of Matthew 19, And behold, a man came up to him, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Now notice, he calls Jesus teacher. He doesn't call him Lord. So he's, he's there for a good teaching, and he wants eternal life. What do I got to do to get eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. And the rich young ruler said to him, well, which one should I keep? Now, there's a loaded question, isn't it? Uh, you know, it, which of the commandments do you want me to keep, Jesus Christ? Okay. And so, Jesus says, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now notice, Jesus has kind of slipped one in there on him. Because uh, he's reciting the Ten Commandments out of Exodus and Deuteronomy. But those aren't in. Love your neighbor is not in there. So the young man said to him, all these I've kept, what do I still lack? And Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away, sorrowful because he had great possessions. So the guy says, what am I going to do to get, get eternal life? And Jesus recites some of the commandments to him. And he left out a couple, and it's notable to think about which ones he left out, because the ones he left out are the ones that would call him to honor and love his Father in heaven. So Jesus is trying to teach him something. The rich man, he got some of these commandments right. But he didn't love God. He wanted eternal life, but he didn't love God. And we know he didn't love God because he valued his possessions above his relationship with his father. He valued his possessions more than he valued loving the poor, more than he valued eternal life. 
He valued his possessions more than he valued his Father in heaven. He demonstrated his lack of love for God by showing that he didn't love others. If he loved God, that would be flowing from him. But he wasn't willing to give up what he had for the benefit of others. So, what we find out is that eternal love is not what the man needed. It's what he thought he needed. It was a bug he was darting after. Okay? What he needed was love, and he had none. Love is the mark of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the mark of our eternal life. What the guy didn't understand is if he had loved God, he'd have gotten eternal life. He wasn't willing to do what he was called to do in order to achieve it. Eternal life is not the goal of our walk, brothers and sisters. I mean, we see it right here. The eternal life is a byproduct of our love for God. It's the evidence of our love for God. The evidence of our love for God is in how we love others, how we love the people around us. Let me give you what I, I think is just a beautiful illustration of this. April 1st, 1912, the Reverend John Harper, Baptist preacher from Scotland, was out on the deck of the Titanic. And he was looking at the, the sunset. It was beautiful. He was traveling with his, his daughter-in-law and with his granddaughter, Nina. And he turned to his daughter-in-law and he said, tomorrow is going to be beautiful. They were headed for the Moody Church in Chicago. And a collision happened. They hit the iceberg. And John Harper made sure that his daughter-in-law was headed for the lifeboats, and he ran back to the cabin, wrapped his granddaughter in a, a blanket, and took her out to the lifeboat. And when he got to lifeboat number 11, there was a crew member helping people get on. That's where her mother was. He handed Nina to the, the crew member in the lifeboat, who handed him to her mother, and that was the last that John Harper's daughter-in-law and granddaughter ever saw of him. He went back into the boat. Now, we don't know everything that happened when he went in the boat, but there's a, a, a couple of first-person accounts of people that ran into John Harper during the sinking of the Titanic. There's one nameless survivor, unidentified survivor, who said that he was floating around with hundreds of others in this ice-cold water, in the Atlantic, and yeah, he, he caught hold of something and is clinging on to it for dear life, and drifting up next to him is this guy who says, call out to Jesus Christ. Find Jesus Christ. You need him right now. And, and so they drifted apart, and, and he, he wanted this man to look to Jesus Christ for the safety of his soul, not necessarily his body. They drifted apart, and then they came together again, and, and the man says, call out to Jesus Christ. And the guy says, there I am, I'm floating in water that is 28 degrees and two miles deep, and I can hear this guy telling other people to call out to Jesus Christ, and he tells me twice, and I did, because I was dying. I called out to Jesus Christ, and he answered me. He saved me. Well, he's convinced that that was John Harper. And there was another woman that was floating around in the same water. And she had no life belt. And she had begun to sink. 
And this man came up next to her and urged her to call out to Jesus Christ and gave her his life belt. See, John Harper didn't survive. But he has a legacy and a testimony that survived long after him that he's urging people towards Christ even as he's dying. And he gave up the only hope he had of being saved when he gave that woman his belt. He didn't make it home. Agape love, godly love manifests itself in our attitude towards each other, in our attitude towards those who need Jesus. Godly love seeks selflessly the welfare of others, not our own. So, love seeks selflessly, and love satisfies completely. Look at verse 10. Love, agape, does no wrong to a neighbor. And the intention here is it, it would be wrong not to show love to a neighbor. It would be wrong to, to withhold love to a neighbor. See, this is the whole point of the parable about the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10. A neighbor is anyone that we come across who needs help. And if you would think about it for just a second, a neighbor is anyone who we come across who needs help in the way of knowing about Jesus Christ. I mean, it's the very best help we can give anybody. Who knows how many people sunk in the Atlantic Ocean after John Harper urged them to call on Jesus Christ. And maybe they did, but when they went down, they went up at the same time, amen? So a neighbor is anyone who needs help. Love is the inevitable response of someone who has truly been touched and changed by God. Someone who is in the process of being transformed. Now, this is totally contrary to what we're immersed in, brothers and sisters. Because we're immersed in a culture that says, the focus is on you. Your welfare is the most important thing. Take care of yourself before you take care of others. You're the center of the universe. I've told you this before. I used to think that when I died, all you people would go away. Why on earth would you even be here if I wasn't? It's easy to become that self-centered, isn't it? It's easy to think we're the center of the universe. We're not. God is the center of the universe. He has somehow shed this love upon us, love that we didn't deserve, love that we haven't earned, and his only calling to us has shed the same type of love that I've given you with the people around you. It's hard to do. Especially hard to do when everything tells us it's all about us. John Stott said this. Um, Anglican theologian from the 20th century, brilliant man. Jesus spoke of a first and second commandment, but not a third. What he was saying is there's no commandment in the Bible that tells you to love yourself. There, there's nothing that says you're the center of the universe. John says, agape is a selfless love that cannot be turned in on itself. Self-love is the essence of sin. Now, we know that, but it's hard to do. As a matter of fact, I've got I to be honest with you. This is something we can't conjure up on ourselves. We don't have the capability to love others as more important than ourselves. Praise God that when we're born again, when we confess our sins, when we turn towards Jesus Christ and away from our sins, 
The Holy Spirit comes to live inside us. He's our helper. He's our counselor. He's the one who guides us. He's the one who protects us. So God has given us the Spirit to help us love others the way that he loves us. He hasn't left us out on our own. Scripturally, we, Scripture acknowledges that we naturally love ourselves. If you take a look at Ephesians 5, we covered it last week, go, week before. Go back and take a look at that. It acknowledges that we naturally love ourselves, but we're commanded to have the same regard for others that we instinctively have for ourselves. And Paul says back in Romans, when we do this, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Love never wrongs another person. It fully satisfies all that the law requires. Now, now, Matthew 24 talks about this. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So it's, it's love and action that fulfills the law. So it, it's not just that we go out and love each other intentionally. We're called to do that. But the love in action demonstrates that we have saving faith. It demonstrates that we believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, that he died for our sins. It is the evidence that we're being conformed to the image of God, being made into the likeness of him, and loving without limits and unconditionally is a statement of faith that we're called to make. So it's not a way to get into heaven just to love other people. It's a way of demonstrating that we're already headed for heaven. So the law is satisfied when our faith and belief in Jesus manifests itself in a love for others that is hard to explain. And when the law is satisfied, we find peace. We find an unexpressible joy. So love seeks selflessly. We're to express the same type of sacrificial, unconditional, selfless love that Jesus expressed for us. It's a brand of the Holy Spirit upon us, upon our lifestyle as we live the gospel out. The evidence of our love for God is that it seeks the welfare of others above our own welfare. Love satisfies completely. It's the evidence of our faith. It's the full expression of Christ in us. And when we allow that to flow from us the way it flowed to us, we find peace and we find joy. It's an incredible encouragement that Paul's given us here. See, only love satisfies. Only love satisfies. When we go darting after one thing, darting after another team, another thing, you know, thinking that there's satisfaction in that, we always end up empty. When we empty ourselves and present ourselves as a sacrifice to the people around us, the way that Jesus sacrificed himself for us. We're about to do communion. We're about to, to remember uh, the body that was battered and tortured and the blood that was shed completely. We're about to remember the fact that Christ sacrificed himself, gave up his life for us so that we could have these precious moments together with him and with each other. 
And the Holy Spirit would say to us today, this is what love looks like. Are we living this? Are we living the gospel to its full extent? Are we pouring ourselves out for the people around us? Are we preserving ourselves? So I'm going to ask the deacons to come forward. And I'm going to ask you, this is, you know, communion is always an opportunity to examine ourselves, not to honor our condemnation. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen? Okay? But when the Holy Spirit tells us to begin examining ourselves, it is a gift from God. It is, it is a gift from God saying, examine your life. If there's anything between you and a deeper relationship with your Father, let's take care of it right now. And as things come to your mind, we don't have to worry over them. We don't have to fret. We don't have to feel guilty about them. All we have to do is repent. God has given us this incredible tool to restore us into a right relationship with him. And when the Spirit tells us we've done something wrong, it's not to load us down with guilt. It's a call to repentance. And the minute we give that up to the Father, our relationship is restored, and we find peace. So I'm going to ask you to bow your heads. We're going to pass the bread, and then we'll take it together, and then we'll pass the juice and take it together, and then we'll have some prayer and sing.